Amen. Good morning, church. Great to see you. Sorry, not been around for the last couple of weeks. We've been on a family holiday in Cornwall for a couple of weeks. Cornwall is amazing. We have some incredible... The British Isles are are wonderful. And uh, if you want some beaches to go to, um, I can tell you some great ones. Zoe and I can tell you some great ones down in Cornwall. Um, If you're new and you're visiting us, as Tim said, my name's Gareth, part of the team. We've been around for um, uh, almost 10 years. And we're in a teaching series where we're considering how we can, um, what we can learn from Jesus' encounters with different kinds of individuals, kind of large groups, small groups, um, individuals. And if you, um, forgive me, I'm just going to cut short the beginning, and we're just going to jump straight into Luke 22. Luke 22, as we look at Jesus' encounters with the religious. Luke 22 verses um, 63 to 71. And just as you're finding it, um, a little bit of brief background. Jesus is in Jerusalem, of course, the holy city, the epicenter of the Jewish faith, um, just having been betrayed by Jesus. Jesus is arrested by the high priest's guard, and he now stands before the religious council, the Sanhedrin. And as we read this passage, I want to encourage us to ask the question, How does Jesus respond to what's happening to him? How does Jesus respond to what's happening to him? So Luke 22, 63 through to 71. At daybreak, the council of the elders of the people, both the chief priests and the teachers of the law, met together. And Jesus was led before them. If you are the Messiah, they said, tell us. Jesus said, if I tell you, you you will not believe me. And if I asked you, you would not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of the mighty God. They all asked, are you then the Son of God? He replied, you say that I am. Then they said, why do we need any more testimony? We've heard it from his own lips. And then verse uh, 1 of 23 um, says, Then the whole assembly rose, led him off to Pilate, and they began to accuse him, saying, We have found this man subverting our nation. Keep the um, scripture open if you'd like. One of my um, most vivid childhood memories um, was playing Oliver in the school, the school musical. Um, you probably don't imagine this from um, my height and my slim sort of um, posture, Um, but I was actually one of the chunky kids in school. And uh, so to play an orphan in a Victorian workhouse might have seemed a little bit uh, ridiculous, but nonetheless, I I got the part. And if you're familiar with the story, um, Oliver is in the workhouse that's run by Mr. Bumble, and his wife. And in Charles Dickens' book, Oliver Twist, Mr. Bumble is accused of mistreating the children in the orphanage. And he boldly claims that the fault was all his wife's. Dangerous ground. When told that the law holds him accountable for the actions of his wife, Mr. Bumble is dumbfounded and responds, if the law does that, then the law is an ass and the law is a bachelor. Ridiculous, it seems. What is taking place here with Jesus may even seem 
ridiculous. The passage that we've just read is the account of perhaps one of the most infamous law trials of all history. Why? Because God himself is on trial. God himself is on trial, not just in one court, but in three. The first law court we've just read um, of the Sanhedrin, Jesus is brought before the Jewish council and he's charged before Jewish law. If we were to read a little bit further on in the passage, we'd see that Jesus appears before Pilate and he's judged under Roman law. And then finally, Jesus is tried according to Jewish secular law, uh, represented by the council of King Herod. We know from the other gospel accounts that the religious council, in fact, tried Jesus twice. Once at night, which actually was illegal, and then second at daybreak. But ultimately, the crux of their case against Jesus rested on the answer to the question, who are you, Jesus? Who are you, Jesus? And as we're in this season of growing greener and thinking about how we can learn from these encounters with, with, with Jesus and we can think about how we might be sharing our faith with our neighbors, with our work colleagues, with um, our family members who don't yet know Jesus, the question that they ultimately need the answer to the question is, who is Jesus? Who is Jesus to them? And when they ask Jesus if he's the Messiah, if he's God's anointed, the Christ, the Son of God, in verses 67 and 70, Jesus avoids answering the question directly and simply says, you said it. You said it. And the religious council then manipulate what Jesus said to declare that Jesus is guilty. And the whole assembly rose, saying he's subverting our nation, and they send him off for further interrogation by, by um, Pilate. And we know from the other gospel accounts from this particular scene that the false witnesses, um, that false witnesses were repeatedly brought in to give false accusation against Jesus. He was accused of violating the Sabbath by healing someone on the Sabbath, of threatening to destroy the Jewish temple of sorcery, of exercising people from demonic powers and claiming to be both the Messiah and the Son of God. And yet, how does Jesus respond when all these charges come against him? Jesus doesn't retaliate. He doesn't choose to angrily rebut their arguments, however false or blatantly untrue, or for that matter, call down an army of firebombing angels um, to smite the chief priests and the Sanhedrin with, uh, into, a, uh, a, um, into a, a smoldering ember, which is perhaps what I might be tempted to do if I were the Son of God. When the heat is on, when Jesus is up against the religious ropes, as it were, Jesus is generally quiet. He doesn't mount a defense, and rarely does he respond to the accusations, but he's condemned by the Jewish authorities. So here's my question. Why is Jesus like this? Why is Jesus like this? When most of us, if we're honest, if we were in a similar situation, we would probably want to fight our cause or have someone fight our cause for us, we might fight back with verbal blow after blow, and yet Jesus is silent. Don't know whether you found yourself in a difficult position. Maybe you found yourself in a difficult position with a friend. 
in the workplace, a grievance with a family member or a friend, you felt backed into a corner. Maybe you've even felt accused of things that you didn't actually do. What do you do? Psychologists tell us that often when we find ourselves in tough spots, we often take the fight or flight approach, or what's technically called hyperarousal. We tend to lash out or we run away. Jesus does neither. Of course, we all know, don't we, too well, that we are now in a digital slang match. You know, we are in, in the age where anyone can express their comment irrespective of perhaps how they might be perceived, irrespective of um, whether what they say is in fact true. We see it with world leaders, politicians, journalists, celebrities, and sadly even some church leaders, everyday people as well, like you and I. The temptation is to comment. We're bombarded by the online frenzy of accusation, of racism, of deceit, name-calling. Social media has become, in my view, at times, the adult school playground for name-calling. And that has led and is leading to a dehumanizing of our human value systems. Our culture has jettisoned values of honor and integrity and truth for the amusement and degradation of others, often the innocent. I wonder how Jesus would respond to what I tweet and what you tweet, what other people tweet. It's important to recognize, though, that Jesus doesn't always, um, he's not always silent with the religious leaders. It's not that Jesus is a rollover kind of guy. He is, of course, the stone rolled away kind of God. In Matthew's gospel particularly, Jesus, out of a sense of God's heart for what is right, for truth and for justice, Jesus is, in fact, extremely direct to the religious leaders. Matthew 23, we read about um, what is entitled in the, the New International Version, the, the seven woes of Jesus. The seven woes of Jesus when he basically bombards the religious leaders because they've, they've made it difficult for the people of God to encounter God for themselves. Through their um, extra laws and rituals, they were making people need to jump through hoops to encounter God. And in Matthew 23, it makes for some sober theological reading and I think speaks to any religious or judgmental spirit that we might assume or hold, even in the church. We need to ask ourselves, are there any obstacles that we put in front of people encountering Jesus? Are there any obstacles to the way in which I conduct myself in my workplace? Are there any obstacles to which I conduct myself with my neighbor, with my family members? that could get in the way of them encountering Jesus through my personal witness and testimony. Jesus says in Matthew 23, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You shut the door of the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. I mean, it's hard stuff, isn't it? Woe to you, blind guides! And he goes on to say, you snakes! You brood of vipers, how will you escape being condemned to hell? You are supposed to be the ones that are helping people to encounter the living God and then you create obstacle after obstacle. 
So why is Jesus silent at his trial? Why doesn't he defend himself? Two reasons particularly come to mind to me. I'm sure there may be others and you might, may have some others. But the first is this. I think. Jesus surrendered his will to the Father. He surrendered his will to the Father. Only hours before Jesus is here being accused in the passage today, Jesus prayed, Father, not my will, but your will. Not my will, but your will. Now, of course, not just this account in Luke 22 or in the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus is someone who repeatedly and continually submitted his life in surrender to the Father. Following his commissioning baptism by the Father and the Spirit, Jesus consecrates himself to the Father's will and plans. He doesn't allow the enemy to um, lead him down um, prosperity when, when he, he offers him the world if he would bow down and worship Satan. No, he remains committed to the Father's purposes and plans. His resolve is to surrender to the Father and to do his will. In John's Gospel, Jesus' disciples are concerned that Jesus hasn't eaten. Um, he's been on ministry, preaching and healing people, and they tell him, you know, Jesus, you need to eat something. Jesus' response is this. My food, he says, is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. In essence, Jesus is saying, you're concerned about the physical things, my disciples, but my nourishment, my food, com comes from the sustaining work of doing the will of the Father and his kingdom assignments, what he has got and what he is showing me. Shortly after, the religious leaders are challenging Jesus over healing someone on the Sabbath, one of the reasons why um, he, was, he was accused at his trial. Jesus gave them this answer. He said, very truly I tell you, the son can do nothing by himself. He can only do what he sees the father doing. Because whatever the father does, the son does. Jesus was only ever about the father's business. I wonder if that is true of you and I. That we are a church, we are a people whose primary purpose is to serve the Father, to serve his will as he reveals it to us. Jesus only ever did what he knew the Father wanted. So he daily, and I think it is a daily surrender, he daily surrendered to the Father's will. Backed into a corner in a courtroom in Jerusalem, Jesus hasn't surrendered to his accusers, but his Father's will. And Jesus looked out of the courtroom and he looked out towards Golgotha. He knew the Father's purposes and the Father's will. I wonder when we find ourselves backed into a corner, accused, feeling we're on trial perhaps in an argument, maybe witnessing to our friends and colleagues about Jesus and we find the response being antagonistic rather than respond in a fight or flight manner. How about Father? How about Father? Father, what do you want to do? 
Father, what are you doing here? What are you saying here? Do we surrender to the Father's will in difficult situations, both outside and inside the church? I think Jesus was silent, firstly because he surrendered to the Father's will. The second reason I think Jesus chose not to respond in ways that we might perhaps typically do so is the greater law. The greater law. You see, the Pharisees, they were sticklers for the law. They dealt in the finite elements of Jewish tradition in relation to the Torah. They could recite the law backwards. They knew all about the nuances of burnt sacrifices and offerings. And, you know, if your wife burnt your toast, you could divorce her. You know, that's how ridiculous it seemed to have got. And yet they failed to fully understand. They failed to fully understand and live out the law that penetrated right through the heart of the Jewish faith. Turn to Mark 12, if you've got your Bibles open. Mark 12. It'll appear on the screens. Again, one of the teachers of the law comes to Jesus. He'd heard them debating and noticing that Jesus had given good answers. He asked him, of all the commandments, which is the most important? The most important One, answered Jesus, is this. Hear, O Israel, the Shema, the beginning of their daily prayer. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. With everything that you are, love God. The second is this. Love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. If you read on down in the passage, you see that the teacher of the law that asked him this question goes on to say, yes, Jesus, you are right. Even greater than the offerings and the sacrifices, the burnt offerings and the sacrifices. And Jesus goes on to say to him, you are closer to the kingdom than you know. The greater law. Love God, love people. Jesus demonstrates at his trial the law of love. In the middle of the courtroom, Jesus, when he's accused, when he's abused, when he's spat on, when he's beaten up, he loves those who oppose him. I think it was out of love that Jesus remained silent. He loved Caiaphas, the chief priest. He loved the Pharisees who mocked and berated him. He loved those who gave false witness against him. He loved them that he remained silent. And he loved them so much that they themselves could know the redemption of their sin when he were to hang on a cross on Calvary. He loved them. And I think, in the, personally, I think in the midst of being beaten and accused, Jesus is in tears. And under his breath, he's probably saying, I love you. I love you. As he takes another hit, as he takes another accusation, I love you. I love you. Of course, this is one of the most life-defining commandments, I think, of all Christians everywhere. Jesus spoke in John 15 when he said, my command is this, love each other Love each other in the church. Love yourselves. 
Be at peace with one another within the church. Love each other as I have loved you. Greater love ought you have than you lay down your life for your friends. We lay down our lives, church, for each other. We sacrifice ourselves, not for ourselves, for our own gain, but for others. You know, when Jesus said in his ministry, love your neighbors, pray for those who persecute you, this is what it looked like in the courtroom when Jesus was being trialed and beaten and accused. He knew his own teaching. He lived it out. He enacted it. Jesus' love to the world. And Jesus, of course, says to us, this love that you have for each other, as you display it to each other, the world will know that you are my disciples. Isn't that what Jesus said? People will know, not by what you tweet on Twitter, but by how you live out your faith in love. How we act in love for one another. John Mayer um, is um, one of my... um, Um, musical tastes and uh, he wrote this song and love is a verb take a listen when we're thinking about how we can expand God's kingdom when we're thinking about the example of Jesus who surrendered his will to the Father and lived a life of love, and we consider the world outside these four walls, a world that is hurting, a world that is desperate, a world that is lost, a world that is um, going to an eternity without God, the world is crying out for a church that would say, show me. Don't tell me you love me, show me. Show me that you love me. And we do that, church, in the empowering presence of God's Holy Spirit, who equips and empowers the church that we are never alone, that he is always with us to the very end of the age, and he says, go, go. I wonder what this week would look like for you if you intentionally in your mind when you got up to get up tomorrow morning, prayed, Father, I surrender to your will. Help me to love people. If that was your prayer every day for the next month, I wonder what God would do in us and through us. Amen. Amen. Let's stand, church. If you're new and you're visiting us, um, we don't have to rush away to go and pick up children. Um, our practice is to be still, to stand in the presence of God. The Lord is here. His Spirit is with us. And to invite Him, by His Holy Spirit, to come and equip and empower us for the work of mission. For the work of declaring that Jesus is Lord and Saviour. So I want to invite you, if you um, feel able as you're standing, close your eyes. I'm going to pray that that ancient prayer 
Come, Holy Spirit. You may want to hold out your hands. The Bible talks of the Holy Spirit as a gift, the gift of God. And if you want to receive a gift, you can receive a gift with your, your arms, arms folded if you want, but the gift will fall to the ground, I'll tell you that. But if you hold your hands out, we can receive all that God wants to give to us. Heavenly Father, I want to thank you for your goodness to us. Father, I want to thank you that you are God and that you are good and you love your people. You love this people. Heavenly Father, I pray that you'd come now and you'd pour out your Holy Spirit upon us. We need you. Holy Spirit, come. Holy Spirit, come. And I just encourage you in this moment, whatever is on your mind, to bring your attention to the Father and ask him for his Holy Spirit. Ask him that he might fill you with his presence because we need his presence. Holy Spirit, come. Holy Spirit, come.